This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael and Megan's newest book, Win at Work and Succeed at Life. Enjoy Michael and Megan exploring what it takes to achieve the double win while they recount stories that bring joy and some stories that sting, all while laying out how you can win at work and succeed at life. Pre-order your copy today at winandsucceedbook.com. That's winandsucceedbook.com. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast designed to help you win at work and succeed at life. And speaking of work, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about work and why, for so many people, it's out of control. Yeah, I'm really excited about this topic. You and I have been talking a lot about it lately because we have a brand new book out called Win at Work and Succeed at Life, all about how do we beat back this thing called the cult of overwork. And so we're really going to dig into that today. What is it? What's what's going on? What's making us all work way too much all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really excited to dig into this. I think a lot of you guys listening can relate to this in your lives. Okay, well, let's start at the very beginning and start by saying that work is a gift. And in fact, I believe it's a a gift from God, but like all gifts, they can become an idol and destroy us. And I think for a lot of people, that's kind of the truth. And and I'm going to pick on Elon Musk here for a second. We pick on on him in the book, and I don't, you know, intend to judge him, but he's he's kind of held himself up as this celebrity entrepreneur who's advising and influencing millions of young entrepreneurs. And one of the things that he says is that you need to be working like 100 hours a week. I mean, literally, we have a quote in the book to that effect that he says you need to work 100 hours a week. And if you do work out 100 hours a week, then you'll be able to smoke your competition because they won't be able to keep up. Well, guess what? You won't be able to keep up either. And in fact, as it turns out, Elon Musk can't keep up. You know, he's... Been married several times now. He's got five kids by his own admission, five sons that won't talk to him. And so this is not the outcome that I think, for, for, for sure, Megan, you and I are looking for, right. but this is not the outcome our audience is looking for. You know, I don't think any of us want to wake up one day and suddenly discover that we've sacrificed our health or we've sacrificed our most important relationships on the altar of our own ambition. Okay, so, you know, apparently, if you're going to accomplish you know, huge things like Elon Musk is out to do, including going to Mars. Like that seems to be, you know, his passion in life. The only problem is that when he gets there, he might find himself alone. And none of us want that. Well, you know, that's kind of the big hot mess example in celebrity culture. And there, there of course, are many others. But this gets lived out all the time, whether in your own life or people that you know closely. And we talk about it in the book, as something we call the hustle fallacy. And it's basically that idea, that little conversation in our head that goes something like, oh man, I, you know, I just got to double down for a little while. I've just got to, you know, put in some extra hours here for the next few months or maybe for the next year until I get this business off the ground or this ministry off the ground or until this project is done or until this product launches, whatever, whatever it is for you, but it'll be worth it because then I'll be set. You know, the problem is, is that, and I think we know this intuitively, that temporary kind of deal with the devil that we're making ends up becoming 
not temporary. It becomes permanent. And that's where the problem set in. No, that's exactly right. And and if it's not the hustle fallacy, people think because they're facing this thing that we call in the book, the impossible choice, where you can right. win at work or succeed at life, but you can't have both. They pick either the hustle fallacy, which you just described, or the alternative to that is the ambition break, where you pump the brakes on your own ambition, on your own career, on your own dreams for your vocation. And you just say, look, I'm not going to sacrifice my health. I'm not going to sacrifice my family. Therefore, I'm going to sacrifice my career. We think, and we argue in the book, that that's a false dichotomy. It's not either or. It can be both and. But again, I think we have to to dig in and understand why it is that we work and why it's so detrimental when it's done in excess. Well, okay, before we get to that, let's talk about some of these characteristics of that thing in the book we call the cult of overwork. So people can recognize these in their own lives. Okay. So the first thing I would say, and there are five basic uh, features or, or five attributes of this hustle fallacy. First of all, work provides the primary orientation for life. Mm-hmm. In other words, work is, is the primary thing. Everything else is just kind of the fringe or on the edge of work. We're either working or we're preparing to work or we're trying to recover from work, but pretty much life is total work. Anything else is in the service of our work. Well, and you can see right away if you've done this or watched somebody do this in their own life, this becomes a big problem real fast because as we talk about in the book, there are actually 10 domains of life of which your vocation is only one. And so what about all those other domains? What about the people in your life that are important? What about your health? What about uh, your spiritual life, et cetera, et cetera? You know, this is a real setup that's building for a big problem. That's right. Which leads us into the second attribute of the hustle fallacy or the cult of overwork, and it's that constraints stifle productivity. Mm-hmm. In other words, we don't want any constraints. You know, if I don't finish my work this afternoon, I want to be able to go home, have a quick dinner with the family, crack open my laptop, and resume work. Or I want to be able to work on the weekends if I need to, or if I need to drag a project into my vacation because I didn't have time during my regular work hours to finish it. I want to be able to do that. So constraints seem to be the enemy of what we want. And I, I can remember times growing up when you would do this. And and I think that probably a lot of people can relate to this where you, you're almost like irritable that somebody would suggest otherwise. You know, we both tell our own stories of accomplishing the double win and kind of the journey to get there. So there's a lot of um, self-revelation in the book that I think you guys will enjoy but I could just remember, you know, sort of like, you don't really expect me to do this in the workday. It was almost like your attitude sometimes. Do you remember that? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I think we justify this in a thousand ways, but right. But the main way we justify it is we say, you know, I'm doing this for my family. Right. Right? That's And that's the rationale. The problem is preschoolers in particular, <laughs> but also older kids don't understand that. You know, they don't make the correlation. The, w- the way that they spell love is T-I-M-E. And if you're not spending time with them, you know, it just sounds like, I mean, they, they create all kinds of narratives like, you know, dad must not love me or I may not be, must not be important to him. You know, something else is more important. And that's like the last thing we want to communicate. But that's the exact thing we communicate. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's that's what your spouse thinks too, your friends. I mean, as, a, as it turns out, 
time is kind of the currency of life, which is really one of the premises of this book. You know, it's just a matter of what you're going to spend it on. Okay, so the next one is that work-life balance is a myth. And, you know, that's kind of an easy thing to say. Uh, As I've been talking to people about the book, I think it's kind of for two reasons. One, if you're a super overachiever, it's because, you know, it feels kind of soft and maybe like something for people that aren't serious. You know, I've certainly thought that myself in the past. Um, Or it's because honestly, we have been disappointed by trying to pursue this and failing, not really having a clear path to accomplishing it, and then just being disappointed in ourselves, disappointed in the promise that we were sold, and so that we develop this belief that work-life balance is a myth. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I, I hear oftentimes from people on social media, even in response to our promotion for the new book, is that work-life balance is a myth. And, and what I find is that they create a straw man, and then they proceed to destroy the straw man. It's a character of what we're talking about. Because when we're talking about work-life balance, we're not talking about giving equal time and attention to every domain of life. And the best example I could give of that is this morning, I worked out for 45 minutes in the gym. Today, we have a six-hour workday at Michael Hyde Company. I will work six hours. I don't need to work out at the gym for six hours for my life to be in balance. No, I just need to give the appropriate amount of attention. I'm not even going to spend six hours today with my wife. I don't need to. She she doesn't want that much time from me. I don't want that much time from her, but we want to give each other the appropriate time and attention. That's really what balance is. Right. The other thing about it, Meg, you know, as I'm thinking about it, it's like when you're walking across a balance beam bar, if you were a gymnast, and I don't have personal experience of this, but I've watched the Olympics, so I feel like I know. But, uh, but, you know, they're, they're in a constant state of imbalance. There's this constant tension where you're working to keep things in balance. Right. So it doesn't mean you're going to reach this zen-like state where it's no longer a struggle, where it's no longer work to stay in balance because staying in balance takes work and it's a constant realignment, constant readjustment. I think that's right. Well, then the next characteristic is that a person should always be busy. And man, I, I have really found myself defaulting to this over the years, you know, where we're just living in, especially if those of us in a Western context, you know, that we just got to be moving all the time. We got to be doing something. We got to accomplish something because our identity is 100% in our achievements and nothing else. And so that's how we measure our worth, really, if we're honest, as people, is how much we have to do. And it gives us all these bragging rights about how you doing? Well, man, I'm so busy, you know, that that is, uh, is, is a humble brag, really, Yeah. as, as the kids say. <laughs> Yeah, it's really true. And if you kind of dive into it, one of the things you realize is that not all work is created equal. Not all work advances your career or your business. Some of it's just busy work. Some of it's fake work. Some of it's because there's an expectation at work that we're always busy or that we stay a certain number of hours. But there's no correlation between either one of those and true productivity as measured by actually accomplishing something in the world. You know, you can you can sit at your desk 12 hours a day and not really accomplish anything. You could be totally distracted, checking social media, doing low-level busy work, and not really moving the needle on your business. So, so we've got to get away from that whole idea that busyness or fake work equals productivity. It doesn't. Yep. I totally agree with that. Okay. So the last characteristic here is that rest wastes time that could otherwise go to work. Ugh. 
guilty. Yeah, I, I'm I've certainly you. had that in my mind over the years. Me too. I've been in a place where I've really seen rest or sleep as the enemy. Yep. And sad to admit this, but back when I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, we published a book that advocated that people train themselves to get by on four hours of sleep oh a gosh. night. So it's like, you, you know, you shave five minutes off a night and you just keep going until you get down to four hours. And the argument of the book was that if you do that, very similar to Elon Musk, if you do that, then it will give you a leg up on the competition because you will have reclaimed four hours that they don't have, that you can reinvest in more work and you could be actually more productive. But that's that's really a false narrative. That's a bad trade. Well, also, you know, we don't win the battle, the results battle by brute force and just putting in hours. We really win that battle by choosing high leverage tasks and projects to focus on that we get a disproportionate return on investment for our investment of time, you know, and that's true both in your professional life and in your personal life. You really want to be thinking about where do we get leverage? It's not just brute force, you know, and I think that's the the kind of overly simplistic way of thinking that falls into this cult of overwork and causes people to have this perspective. So, Well, and just like we were saying that not not all work is created equal, mm-hmm. not all hours are created equal. You know, if you've had a good night's sleep, if you slept eight, eight hours, which is what, you know, everything that, that we've researched has said that the average adult needs, if you sleep eight hours, man, you're focused, you're pro- productive, you're more creative. On the other hand, you have a, a tough night where you get four hours of sleep and you need to keep reading the same paragraph again and right. again. You can't get your words out right. I mean, you're just not as productive. You're not as focused. And so sleep is an integral part of being truly productive. But again, it's part of this cult of overwork to see sleep the enemy. And it's, and it's really a, a demanding God. It is. Okay, before we move on, let me just um, go through again these characteristics of the cult of overwork so they can be top of mind for you. So number one, work provides the primary orientation for life. Number two, constraints stifle productivity. Number three, work-life balance is a myth. Number four, a person should always be busy. And number five, rest waste time that could otherwise go to work. Man, it just sounds kind of oppressive <laughs> going through that list again, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And this kind of worldview has serious implications for our lives. It's not like, you know, it's bad if you do it, but there are no consequences. There are real consequences. And so I want to just talk just briefly about a few of those that we point out in the book. Again, our new book is called Win at Work and Succeed at Life, Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. So one of the points that we make in the book, one implication is that eight in 10 workers in the U.S. at least suffer from on-the-job stress. So not all stress is bad, but this kind of stress pretty much is. This backs up into your health. It backs up into your personal relationships. It backs up into your overall sense of well-being. So this is not something we can just dismiss because stress is going to show up in our body. It's going to show up in disease. It's going to show up in all kinds of things that uh, are, shall we say, suboptimal. So another consequence is that people who work more than 55 hours a week increase their risk of heart attack by 13% and stroke by 33%. I mean, if that's not sobering, 
I don't know what is. I mean, 55 hours in most professional cultures is considered just kind of normal, you know? So we're talking about a, a quote unquote normal number of hours increasing our risk of stroke and heart attack by a significant percentage. The other research we've shown in the book too is that the the difference between 40 and 55 hours is not that much more productivity. In fact, once right. you get past 55, it starts going backwards. Right. But between 40 and 55, there's not that much additional productivity. You know, you're busy, yes, but what are you really accomplishing? You're probably doing a lot of fake work or busy work that, again, doesn't really count. The last doubt I want to point out is that 75% of U.S. professionals say that work-related stress undermines their personal connections. Mm. Well, of course. You know, if you're at work and you're stressed and you bring that home, how attentive, how focused can you be on the people that you're trying to love? You can't. You're going to be distracted. And that's the problem with work-related stress. You know, we want to create the kind of lifestyle where we can work and kill it. We're not We're not saying you should settle for anything less that, than really winning at work, okay? And in a big way. We believe in that in a big way. But at the point at which it becomes uh, detrimental and backs up into the rest of your life, that's not helpful either. And in fact, it ultimately undermines your work effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, um, entrepreneurs suffer considerably higher divorce rates than others, which is also true for CEOs. So, I mean, this I hate that. this rubber kind of meets the road at a, a pretty key point that I think, you know, we got to pay attention to. This is a big deal. Okay, so this begs the question, why do we overwork? You know, in other words, if we're going to solve this problem, and again, we, we try to solve the problem in the book, and I think we do a good job, but we've got to understand, and we unpack this in the book, why do we overwork? What's driving this? Where is it coming from? Well, it's funny because I think normally the answer, if you were just to ask somebody, you know, hey, why do you think you overwork? Most people would say, well, because I have to. Like, it's all external pressure. I have so much to do. Right. I think what we've found is that that is not the case, that the reasons are actually much more complex than they seem at face value. Okay. I think we got to ask people to do something. So when you're listening to this, you might find yourself feeling defensive. Like, you know, like I do have so much to do. And who are you? How dare you challenge me? You know, it must be nice for you to have the kind of lifestyle that you have, but you don't understand my world. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what I want to ask you to do as you're listening to this podcast episode is that you suspend disbelief, Mm -hmm. that you ask yourself if any of what Megan and I are about to share is true of your life. Because honestly, we had to take a long look in the mirror ourselves and say, what's driving us? You know, because we're very driven people. What's driving us? What is at the root of this? And once you peel back the onion past that, well, I've just got a lot to do. What's underneath that? What's the part of the iceberg that you can't see? So that's what we want to drill into now. Well, the first one is that technology makes it possible. I mean, after all, we didn't always have a computer in our pocket, right? There was a time when you had to go to the office to work, you know, in many ways. If you were going to access your computer, for example, that was at work, right? You didn't have a computer at home. And now not only do we have probably multiple computers at home, we have this device in our pocket that literally you can work anywhere on the planet, any hour of the day, you have every app you need right there. And it is not 
concerned with your personal margin or your other priorities outside of work. It's so true. And, you know, the promise that was sold to us, what we were sold was basically that technology is going to make it possible for us to be more effective, more organized, and we'll be able to work less. Mm-hmm. No. No. Nope. Actually, what it's allowed us to do is work all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of people that fear that in the future, they're going to plant a chip in their brains. Well, the truth is, they've packed an enormously powerful chip in our pocket, in our smartphone, and we're tethered to it via addiction, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's as much a part of us as if it were implanted, you know, in our physical body. And so technology is not the answer. You know, it can be, right? I mean, it can, it can be a wonderful servant, but uh, it's it's a terrible master. And for many of us, it's become that. I mean, we've all sat in those dinner meetings or you're with an associate, you're trying to have a conversation and they're constantly looking at their phone. And you just feel like, I don't really have their full attention. I don't have their full focus. Or even worse, being at home when you're doing that to your family. Yep. And I've had on more than one occasion, you know, somebody that loves me take my phone away from me at the dinner table mm-hmm. or turn it upside down. Yep. Or say, can't you, you know, can't you turn that off? But it's it's terrible what it communicates and it's terrible how that impacts our lives and, and crowds into every nook and cranny of our lives. Okay, so the second one, you know, I think we have to we have to admit this. For a lot of us who have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of being able to do work that we love, work is fun. Yeah. Right? And I I meet entrepreneurs, people in our coaching program when they first come in. Then I say, what's your hobby? And they say, well, my work is my hobby. I can't imagine having a hobby that I love more than my work. And they're giving, you know, 24-7 basically to it. So work is fun. And it's enormously rewarding for a lot of other reasons. Well, if you think about it, in many cases, you get to pick the people you work with or you like the people that were already picked on your team. It's work that you are uniquely designed to do if you're fortunate uh, you get to be creative. There's a start point and an end point. We'll talk more about that in a minute, you know, but so many things um, about work are fun. And I think we need to be honest about that. It is fun, but like anything that's fun, it needs to be fun in moderation. You know, there, there are plenty of other fun things to do, like go on vacation that if you did all the time would be a real problem, you know, and that's true for work also. Yeah. Good point. Well, here's another thing about why we overwork. Work provides an opportunity for personal growth and a sense of identity. And, you know, if we're honest, we don't always get that from our families. Mm-hmm. You know, usually being at home as a young dad was where I felt the most incompetent. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really know what I was doing and I saw the least amount of progress. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to in- invest in these little humans and, you know, it's three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps back. And you wonder sometimes, and one of the reasons that that my wife Gail and I like to say to you, Megan, and your sister Mindy, who, you know, between the two of you have nine nine of our grandkids, you know, one of the things that I, I love to say to you all is just encourage you mm-hmm. in the work you're doing as parents, because I know you can't see it. Right. I can see it because I'm not in it every day, right. but you can't see it. But at work, it's totally the opposite. You know, we get a sense of progress. We get a sense of identity. Right. We feel that competence. Well, you have a title. It's very rewarding. Right? I mean, you literally get a title, which tells you who you are. And you have a job description that tells you what you're supposed to do. And you probably have professional development that happens in your company or your organization, right? 
And I mean, that's profound. Like when you think about human needs, that's a big deal. And there would be a lot of incentive for any of us to get more and more of that and for that to get outsized in our lives. Another reason is that work gives us the experience of flow. You know, that kind of thing that happens when you're being creative and you're almost like you feel like you're outside of time a little bit and the ideas just come and you're just rocking and rolling. You know, like what a great feeling. As a mom of five kids, my youngest is two and she's like, you know, a little tiny human tornado most of the time. She's like the cutest tornado you've ever seen, but a tornado nevertheless. There's not a lot of flow like that part. When I'm at home, my my time with my family gets chopped up into like three or five minute increments. You know, we're doing we're reading a book and then we're eating a little snack and then we're going outside. And then, you know, like it's just like it's definitely not flow. Like I'm never losing track of time. You know, I am very conscious of how much longer till bedtime because I'm tired, you know. So I think that um, that is very different from the experience of being at work. And I know I have to be very conscious of valuing that time with my family in this season of our family life and not um, allowing myself to drift into overworking because I get that kind of hit almost, that kind of like dopamine hit of flow. Well, and it might sound like we're trying to sell more work because we're talking about all the benefits on the side of the work, but I think this is something to be aware of so that when you don't experience this at home, you don't think there's something broken or something abnormal. Right, right. No, that's just, that's just the difference between the two. And again, I think we have to be honest as to why work is so attractive. Okay, the last one I want to want to nail is that work provides definable wins. Uh, yeah. Gosh, right? this is so important. I think this is one that if you have young kids at home or maybe you're caring for um, elderly relatives or you have some other you know situation that's really demanding outside of work, that's kind of a long game situation. I think this is so critical to properly understand because if my expectations at home are the same for my quote unquote wins as they are at work, I mean, that's a setup to fail. You know, we're totally. we're in the long game of like raising adults. That's literally a lifetime project. We will be working on that project for 20 plus years. And day to day, we may not have any definable wins. It may be like, feel like you said earlier, a lot of setbacks, you know, and I, I hear from other people we know that have been caring for relatives that are older or sick or whatever. It's kind of the same thing. And so again, I just think we're just trying to be honest with why we overwork. And the book is Win at Work and Succeed at Life. The book is very solution focused. We've we've talked about the problem, the cult of overwork, but like most problems in life, understanding them, awareness of them, you know, is is will get you a long way toward actually fixing the problem. But if you're caught in the web of overwork, if you're caught in that cult, so often you can't see it. And you can't fix what you don't perceive to be a problem. And so this whole podcast episode has been focused on that. We want to encourage you to get the book. We've got some amazing uh, order specials right now. If you order the book right now, and then you go to winandsucceedbook.com, you can redeem your receipt for wherever you buy the book. Buy it on Amazon, buy it at Barnes Barnes & Noble. Better yet, buy it at your local bookseller, but then bring the receipt to winandsucceedbook.com, and you can turn that in for $500 worth of free bonuses. And these are bonuses that are designed to help you get the double win. And that's what we call it, the win at work and succeed at life. We call that the double win. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking about some of the solutions that we offer in the book, but we wanted to frame it up 
so that you can understand, along with us, why this is a problem and the fact that we've got to do something about it. Okay, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, hey, go buy the book. This might just be the exact solution you have been looking for for a long time. I think you're going to find that this book is a big breakthrough for you. So go get the book, winandsucceedbook.com. Hey, until next week, lead to win. So why don't you just why don't you just summarize these and then let's go into this. I got to say though, even though we're not using it, that was a pro level amount of uh navigation through those sections, Megan. That was awesome. Hey, Nick, thank you. So. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's all Pretty going well. in the trash, but but it was great. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael and Megan's newest book, Win at Work and Succeed at Life. Enjoy Michael and Megan exploring what it takes to achieve the double win while they recount stories that bring joy and some stories that sting, all while laying out how you can win at work and succeed at life. Pre-order your copy today at winandsucceedbook.com. That's winandsucceedbook.com.